I've been wondering, are we living in the post-Thanksgiving glow? After all, it is the weekend after Thanksgiving. Or could it be that we're living in the post-Thanksgiving overload? Well, a lot of us, we like the glow and the overload. And I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you were able to celebrate. I hope you were able to take some time to relax and to refresh, to regather your perspective on life by being thankful. I hope your family gathering was good and not characterized by tensions or other kinds of things that happen. But no matter what it is, I hope you were able to step back and give some thought to being thankful. Now, I realize that in our country, and our culture, we generally don't look back at holidays. We look ahead to the next. We tend to think, well, that's done. Now on to the next big thing. And no sooner than Thanksgiving is over do we plunge into Black Friday. Isn't it remarkable how we give thanks on Thursday for all of the great blessings we enjoy? And then we go out Friday to gather up more stuff to pack into our house because we don't think we have enough or we need this or we need that or the other thing. Well, give thanks for what you have and where you are and try to follow the Bible's admonition about that. I don't know if you have thought about this and uh, maybe some of you have been haunted by this even, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there is a very specific guidance that God gives to us. And it's not always easy guidance to hear, but it's important. And I want us to bookend the Thanksgiving season before we get headed into Advent, which we will embrace next week. But I want us to kind of bookend this Thanksgiving season by reminding ourselves of what God says about being thankful and maybe helping ourselves learn that lesson a little better. It always kind of annoys me personally, because I think I'm the least in this, that, that we don't focus on Thanksgiving enough except once a year. And I think that's just a habit that we get into, but I think it's a growing edge for many of us. And so I want to give you a little hint and help on that growing edge. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting about verse 16, I'm going to read from the Message translation. That's an English translation done by a pastor named Eugene Peterson, who is now with the Lord, but has become very popular over the years. And the more I use it, the more I like it. I know a lot of people have been skeptical. They say, well, it's not really a full-blown translation. It's just what he wrote. And after all, it seems a little less like the Bible because he uses different expressions. I don't think it's any less the Bible. It just causes us to think about the Bible differently. And that's one of the advantages we have of all the various English translations. Sometimes when you pick up a different one and you read how that translation or team of translators put it together, it kind of is jarring. But shouldn't the Bible be a little jarring now and then so we don't kind of get numb to what it says? So I want to read from the message from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't turn it off because I said it's the message and you think it's only the King James that's worthwhile. That's another discussion we could have. But hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians 5. Be cheerful no matter what. Now, right away, that's why some people want to dismiss it. Be cheerful no matter what. you got to be kidding me. Does it really say that? Hang on. It really does say that. Be cheerful no matter what. 
pray all the time, thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. You mean God wants us to be cheerful no matter what? Well, that is what it says. You mean God wants us to give thanks no matter what happens? Well, what if, and then people might fill in the blanks, this happens or that happens. And and yeah, we've all lived life long enough to know that some bad things happen. And it's no fun to give thanks in the middle of some of that kind of stuff, but it is necessary. God says to us, be cheerful. Well, does that mean we'll never have down days? No, I don't think so. But it means we don't dwell there. Cheerful should be our dominant perspective. It's not always easy for all of us, some of us, any of us, because some of us are more cheerful than others. We sometimes take life too seriously or come across that way. Maybe we're not thinking that on the inside. So this is not meant as a judgment or for us to point fingers at each other. It's meant as an admonition to say, hey, God wants you to be cheerful. So cheer up. Oh, okay. So if we have a tendency to be less than cheerful, it's our encouragement to cheer up. If we are generally cheerful and nothing seems to get us down, and there are people like that, then it's our reminder that that really is how God wants us to live. It's not that bad things don't happen and that we shouldn't take them seriously, because we who are kind of cheerful by nature sometimes don't take things seriously. That's a mistake as well. But it's a reminder that God didn't bless us so we could be dour all the time. Okay, so be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. Now that's really tough. Bad things happen. They happen to people. They may have happened to you. And so how do we come to grips with this idea that God says to be thankful no matter what? Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. So no matter what happens, God wants us to give thanks. No matter what happens, God wants us to give thanks. Now, I've had some happens in my life, and I could give you some of them, but they don't really matter. They matter to me. They don't need to matter to you. Maybe I can give you one, okay? It's not really the first thing that comes to mind to be thankful when a major hurricane crosses right over your house and you go, you live through and enjoy or dread or manage or whatever, living through a hurricane passing over your house and the eye of the storm going right over your house. Well, that, that seems like, why would we give thanks for the destruction, for the inconvenience, for the, and the list could go on and on. Well, I get it that we have things to, to deal with. But in the midst of almost every situation, might I suggest in the midst of every situation, we can find a reason to give thanks. And I don't say this because I think any of us are perfect at it. I say this because I'm convinced we need to hear what God says to us and get better at it. I don't know that we should ever expect to be perfect at this, there are some people that I admire that seem awfully good at gratitude. I'm kind of reminded of one person that I know who I know something about their life, and, and they had some real difficulties in life. It was not always easy for them. And they have overcome those difficulties and maintained their confidence in God. 
and gone on from there. And I know some of this because I'm a pastor. Yes, I'm pastor of a real church in Cape Coral, Florida, with real people. We have all of the ups and downs of anybody that you might think of. It's just life. And so I want to remind us to take life as it comes and remember to give thanks. So because I'm a pastor, because I think about a lot of these things, I listen to interviews and other information, sometimes sermons from other pastors to to stretch myself in God's direction because that's what I think we all need to do. And I was listening to an interview recently of a, of a lady whose story I have been a little bit familiar with, not intensely familiar, but I remember hearing about it and have heard about it for many years. And when I mention her name, and you only need one name if you know or are familiar a little bit with the story, when I mention her name, many of you will immediately make a connection. But I heard an interview with a, a young lady. Well, she's a little older now than she was when I first became acquainted with her work. But her name is Johnny. Some of you might remember Johnny Erickson Tata. Well, Johnny has quite a story and is more than I know how to describe a remarkable example of faithfulness and confidence in God. You know, here we talk about faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because this is the Faith Is program. Well, Johnny is an example of that kind of faith, confidence in God. Didn't come to her easily. She would be the first to say that. And she did on this interview. But she said something very interesting that I thought would help us as we process Thanksgiving, as we try to go forward with a little bit more thankfulness in our hearts. And we know people who are we think naturally thankful. I don't think they are as naturally thankful as we think. I suspect they have learned to be thankful because most people I know have gone through difficulties. But but Johnny in particular went through serious difficulty. The age of 17, just after high school graduation, she went out with some friends to the Chesapeake Bay and she unwisely, and she says this, admits it, she unwisely dove into the bay and hit the bottom and broke her neck, and she became a quadriplegic from that moment on. So it's a remarkable story of resilience. It's a remarkable story of refusal to give in to despair and depression. It's a remarkable story of God's grace in the midst of these things. And she is pretty honest about the difficulties. As a 17-year-old, she found herself living life in a wheelchair, She just could not move. She was dependent upon other people to care for her. She was a quadriplegic and has been ever since then. And as you can imagine, a young woman in that condition, in that station in life, would go through enormous challenges. How do you imagine life like that? How do you imagine going forward with any kind of hope for the future or joy or any of the things that that you had hoped for in life, all of the things you had imagined and looked forward to, are now suddenly entirely different. Well, she had some patient and wise people that came into her life, and they encouraged her with this idea from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to give thanks to God. 
no matter what happens. Well, she couldn't hardly wrap her head around that. How can I give thanks to God when life is now so impossible for me? When everything I'd look forward to seemingly has been taken away. What do I do? How do I go forward? And she admits she sank into depression and despair. But the people that helped her, loved her enough, cared for her enough to persist and to talk to her and say, you know, God says give thanks no matter what happens. And they said, you know, we hear you when you say that this is too big, this is too difficult to overcome, this is too hard for me to manage. We hear you. And they wisely said to her, and and don't miss this, this is so key, I think. They wisely said to her, why don't you start small? Think about something for which you can give thanks. Even it's as simple as, well, I can still take a breath. Or, well, it was a terrible accident, but my brain was not damaged. I still have my ability to think. Think about all of the things that you can begin to give thanks for, little by little. Now, you may have gone through some difficult times. You may have be, you might even be in the midst of it now. I don't know. You might have gone through Thanksgiving with a little bitterness thinking, well, I've been disappointed by that and this didn't work out in my life or I don't know why that had to happen. That's life for all of us. I get that. You get that. And if you want to redeem that, why don't you allow yourself to receive the grace of God and start small like Johnny did. Start small by just recounting the simple things, the small things, maybe the everyday we take for granted things that you can be thankful for. And you can build on that. I don't know where you want to start, but forget about the disappointments for a moment. They're, they are going to be there when you get back. Trust me. Forget about your aspirations. And some of us who have the most difficult time giving thanks are the ones who have dreamed biggest and we haven't seen what we hope to see come about. But start where you are. Start with one thing that you can be thankful for. Maybe it seems like, well, everybody's thankful for that. Well, okay, but start there. Maybe when you get there, you'll be able to think of something that, well, I hadn't really thought of it this way, but I'm thankful for, and you can fill in that blank. Because all of us have something or some things for which we can be thankful. And we need to start someplace. Even if it starts small, start. And every day, think about some things you can be thankful for. Maybe in the next seven days. Today, start today. And think, well, today I'm thankful for. And just think about that all day. I'm thankful for. Then tomorrow, think, okay, Yesterday I was thankful for, and today I'm still thankful for that, but I'm also thankful for, and you add one to it. And so on the second day, you're thinking about two things for which you're thankful. And you can say to God, thank you for this, and thank you for that. I'm grateful. And then the third day, you can add add another one. The fourth day, try it for seven days. See See how it turns out. Now, one of the reasons and we shouldn't overlook this, and this is a good exercise for you to think about that, just a bite-sized piece, but we need to keep this in mind as well. Sometimes 
we think God owes us something. And it's a really kind of a subtle situation. We just think we've been good or we've been this for God or done that for God, all those kind of things. And we kind of think then God should be reciprocating on all of that. But I want you to stop and pause for a moment and think about this. In a very real sense, and this is one of the other parts of Johnny's testimony, and she reminded us so vividly with her life and her words on this interview. Think about it carefully that, you know, there's no single thing, there's really nothing God owes our rebellious planet. Think about how people, uh, if you're really honest, think about how you have rebelled against God. We have turned away from God at every turn. The Bible talks about how we were enemies of God before we came to Christ. God really owes us nothing. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God made a perfect world for people, but Adam and Eve spoiled it, and we've continued following their example of spoiling it. We have continually turned our own way and away from God. And when he looks down and sees all of us rebellious people, he surely must realize he doesn't owe us a single thing. Now, we often, in the times we live in, think we're entitled to this, that, or the other thing. But let's come to some realizations, shall we? As we think about this Thanksgiving season, let's come to some realizations that, that God doesn't owe us anything, but he's given us many things. And we should focus on the things for which we're thankful and not fret over the disappointments in life. Can you and I, can we agree on that today? And can we move into the next seasons of our lives? Often people struggle with this during the Christmas season because they think everybody's having a great time. This person's going on that trip or that person's buying that or getting that gift or whatever. It goes on and on. We look at social media and we think, well, I've never been like that or I could never do that or how come I don't get to or all the stuff. Just put that nonsense aside and start thanking God for what he has given and what he has done for you. And focus on that. And I'm convinced you will change your perspective over time. It may always be a struggle for you to give thanks. I'm not going to say it's not, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't have to be unless you just want it to be. But let's give thanks. And I remember again the friend I referred to earlier. This person, long before I ever knew this person, went through some absolutely horrible circumstances. Absolutely. And yet, If you met that person today, you would not know it at all that they had lived through that. In fact, I don't think this person would ever tell you about those things unless you really got better acquainted and and it seemed helpful. They just don't park there. They don't live there. And, And if you've been feeling kind of down over Thanksgiving and if you're looking forward to Christmas and thinking, well, i got to endure it again, Well, there will be ups and downs of every season, but there's always an up when we give thanks to God. There's always a reason to be cheerful. There's always a reason to give thanks.
So I want to read that from the message one more time, and I want to continue it because there's a thought that follows it that just ought to also get our attention. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, about verse 16 in the message. Be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. Don't suppress the Spirit. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, we're going to stop in the middle of that sentence. What did he say? He said, don't suppress the Spirit. Now, now we don't want to do that. That's how we live. Well, could it be that when we refuse to be cheerful, when we refuse to give thanks, when we just get mad all the time about the things that we think we should have or the perceived slights or even the real slights that we endure, could it be that when we refuse to give thanks and turn to cheerfulness that we are suppressing the Spirit of God? I find it very interesting the way that is included there in the context from the writer of 1 Thessalonians. And could it be that that's how we unlock the overflow of what God wants to do for us in, in our lives by giving thanks for, for everything and in everything and allow God to redeem all of those things. And when we give thanks, we open ourselves to the flow of the Holy Spirit and we certainly do not want to suppress the Spirit. So give thanks. Give God a chance in your life to flow into it in a way you never imagined. The Bible talks about life in Jesus as being like a well of water springing up. And that's what he wants. That's what we want for you. So don't hold back. Give thanks. Well, some of you are going to say, well, can we move on now? We've had Thanksgiving and here you go again. Well, we can. But I guess you understand why I think we need to think about Thanksgiving and why I wanted to spend some time doing that again. But I do want us to move on, and I do want us to think about some some stories that Jesus told. There were a series of stories in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and, and we don't often think of these stories in the totality or the whole context of them. We tend to take the stories and focus on, well, what's the point of this story why should what should we take away from this why is this important and and rather than seeing the whole big picture of them and i want us to to kind of think about the flow of the stories there are four of them we want to talk about today and think about what what they really remind us of and what's important about them and and then determine that we're going to hear the lesson of those stories and move forward now, we're going to look at the big picture because one of the th important things when we study the Bible is to take the 40,000-foot view, if you will, to be able to look down. If, you, if you've been in an airplane, you know when you look down at the ground, you don't see all the detail. You see a big expanse. Well, we need to do that, and we're going to do that 40-foot level. And that's the point of looking at the flow of the stories. We're also going to look at some specific things so that we can take away a key point that God is making for us in the flow of these four stories. Now, each one has a little different flavor to it, and that's fine. 
And, and those are some specific things that we could focus on. But we want to take away what is kind of a big picture sense of what God is saying to us so that we know how to go forward from here. And, and I think it's helpful when we look at the stories from both of those perspectives. So, so let's talk about them a little bit. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the ending part of 24 is what I'm thinking about, and then into 25, there are four stories. The end of chapter 24, there's a story about faithful servants and unfaithful servants. And it's very plain what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Very serious that these people are supposed to be faithful even when he or their master, as the story says, Jesus being the master, of course, in the story, even when he's not present, that they're supposed to, to be faithful and do what they're supposed to do. But there are some unfaithful ones that as soon as the master is gone, or maybe we could say as soon as we think Jesus has turned his back, they go into all kinds of things and, and act in all kinds of inappropriate ways. And when the master gets back, he rewards those who are faithful and he, well, I guess we could say he dumps those who aren't. As, as the message says, he puts them out in the cold where they're shivering and their teeth are chattering. And I say that with apologies to all of you who live in northern cold temperatures right now, because maybe you're shivering a little bit too. But the point is, makes a clear distinction. There are faithful and unfaithful servants, and there are consequences to their choice to be faithful or unfaithful. I'm convinced Jesus wants us to hear that warning. Next story that we get to is a story of the ten bridesmaids. Well, different English translations refer to them differently. I think it helps to think of them as bridesmaids because that makes sense to us. They're attendants at a wedding. Weddings were different in the New Testament times. I understand that. You understand that. But it talks about the, the bridesmaids, and, and there were ten of them. And five of them took extra oil for their lamps. They needed their lamps. It was at night, and they needed enough oil to keep their lamps burning. Five of the bridesmaids didn't take extra oil, and so the night stretched on, and they turns out they needed the extra oil to be ready when the bridegroom appeared. And I'm really condensing the story here. And so they found themselves in a bit of a problem when they didn't have extra oil. The five that didn't bring extra oil, they asked to borrow some, but they were refused because they said, there won't be enough for for any of us if we share it. Go buy some and come back. So they went. The five who were not prepared went to buy some oil. They purchased it, returned. But by then the bridegroom had come and the wedding feast had begun and the door was shut. They knocked on it to gain entrance and were turned away. Well, we think, well, why didn't they just let them in late? Because a lot of times we show up late. By the way, don't keep showing up late. You can can live your life better. But that's a quick digression. Actually, what happened was, by not being prepared, it was an insult to the bridegroom and his family. And so when they came back, they had already insulted the people. Everybody knew what was going on. These were not huge cities. Everybody in the village would have known. And they turned them away because the insult was too great to overcome. But Jesus doesn't want to judge you. He wants you to be faithful and prepared. So why don't we just make it our business to be faithful and prepared? 
Well, we'll be back in just a minute. So glad you joined me. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Stay tuned. We'll return. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutLoud.News. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. We're back. I 
I was thinking, and I say this carefully, I think it's almost irreverent, but we're back in the same way Jesus is coming back. Well, not in the same way he's coming, but we have returned anyway, and he will return. So let's make sure that as we consider these stories that we've been talking about, that we remember that it's a certainty that Jesus will return. That's consistent in all of the stories that Jesus will be back. He will be back and the faithful and unfaithful servants will give an account. He will come back and surprise some of the bridesmaids. And we need to be faithful and prepared. Well, we've been talking about the stories that Jesus told in Matthew 24 and 25. And we've been trying to learn from them so that we can be the right kind of people. We can be prepared. We know one of the things, and we'll get to the next two stories, we know one of the things from the stories already, and it's true in the next two, that judgment will accompany Jesus' return, or follow it, however you want to think about it. I don't know that we need to get caught up on the exact sequence of events. But we know that judgment is coming. And some people find that very unsettling. So maybe before we get into the next two stories, we should just think about that a little bit. And I would like to ask you the question, why do you find judgment unsettling? Well, there could be many answers to that, and I don't presume to know your answer. But I do think it's important to think that through. I know in my life when I was growing up and the church in those days focused a lot on making us afraid. There was a lot of talk about the fearsomeness of the return of Jesus. Well, you know, if like the unfaithful servants, if you're unfaithful, that's something to, to fear. If you're not prepared, like the five bridesmaids that didn't have sufficient oil, then that's cause for you to be concerned about Jesus' coming. But the other side of that is the coming of Jesus for his people should be a time of anticipation and eagerness and look forward to. So if you find yourself always being afraid of that, find some people that can help you sort out what's going on so that you can get to the point of saying, wow, I hope he comes today. I'm ready. I'm eager. This place is a mess. I'd much rather live where he is in the place he's preparing for us. Well, I think that's an appropriate aspiration, and I don't want you to live in fear. At the same time, people might resist this, but at the same time, judgment is a necessary component of the return of Jesus. Well, how do you say necessary? Why can't he just give everybody a pass? Well, why can't he? Well, think about it this way. Have you ever been upset by something that's happening in the world around you? Have you ever heard about certain events that are going on and been really annoyed that they were going on or cried out to God, how can you let this happen? That's a very frequent thing that people say. Something bad happens. How can God, a good God, let that happen? Well, the answer is quite simple because we're a rebellious bunch and we don't do what God wants us to do. And so bad things happen. And yes, he's allowed that to happen. And whenever we cry out for, and this is the word we have all the time today, whenever we cry out for justice, we are crying out for Jesus to come back and to say to the unfaithful servants, get out of here, to turn the unprepared bridesmaids away, because we have this sense of right and wrong and what's fair and unfair, and we want God to 
bring that to pass. So because of the way God has given us the world to live in, because of the reality of good and evil, and because we are against evil and wish it would go away, God one day will come back to make all those wrongs right. And he will judge the wrong, and he will reward the right. So we really shouldn't be so so worried about that. What we want, really, probably, is we want to do whatever we want to do and for God to say it's okay. Really, that's what we want. We want to rebel against God. We want to resist God. We want to not listen to God. We want to refuse that that to realize that he gives us wisdom. We don't want to practice wisdom in our lives. We just want to do whatever we want to do, and we want God to say, good for you. Well, nothing works that way, does it? And if it did work that way, who would be God? You would be God, or I would be God, or someone else would be God, but not the God of the Bible. So we need to kind of think this thing through. You might not like the idea of judgment, but God is going to deal with evil. That was the point of Jesus on the cross, dealing decisively with evil. And one day, that will be fully, fully taken care of. Evil was defeated at the cross, and one day it will be taken completely away, and we will live with Christ in a world we could hardly dare to imagine. Okay, so let's go ahead. We've been talking about these four stories, the story of the faithful and unfaithful servants. We talked about the bridesmaids. I called them bridesmaids because I think that's what helps us. Other translations call them different names. Don't get caught up in those kinds of things. And then there's a story that we often call the parable of the talents, or I've noticed some headings in some Bibles these days talk about investment. It's the story about investment. Well, okay, yes, it applies to money, and yes, money is used in the story, but it's more than just an investment story. So make sure you understand when you read a parable, yes, there are real things that are described, but it's always given to us with the intention for us to get more out of it than simply that this is a story about investment. So what happens is the master comes and and he's getting ready to go on an adventure of some kind. He's going to go on a trip and he gives his one servant five talents or as Eugene Peterson says, $5,000. It says, take care of this. Gives another one 2,000. Take care of this. And a third one, 1,000. And he did that based on his assessment of their abilities. If the person could handle 5,000, he gave them five. If he thought they could handle two, he gave them two. If he thought they could handle one, he gave them one. He didn't, he didn't set them up for failure. He set them up to manage what he thought they could successfully manage. Well, so he went away. He was gone a long time. And the uh, master finally came back and began to settle up with these servants and see how they had done. Well, he was delighted that the first one that had been given 5000 came back and said, I've doubled it. And the master was commended for that. You did great, you know, good for you. The second person comes up, the one with 2000 said, yeah, you gave me 2000 and look at this, I've doubled it, and you now have 4000 Well, the master was quite pleased by that. Well done. Good for you. Good job. And, and he commended them both heartily. Well, then the servant with 1,000 comes up and says, Well, Master, I know you were a tough boss. You were a tough supervisor. And you don't 
like people making mistakes. And because I knew how demanding and rigorous you really are, I was afraid. I was afraid I might disappoint you. So rather than lose what you had, I went and buried it so I wouldn't lose any of it. And here it is. I'm, I'm prepared to give it back to you. Here's your $1,000 back. Well, the master responds to that with fury. He's furious at the servant. How could you do that? You know, in so many words is you knew I expected more. Why couldn't you at least deposit it and get a little interest for me? Instead, all you did was hide it and it did no good for you or anyone else. Well, you can look at what is said in the story in Matthew chapter 25. But here's what I liked about the way Eugene Peterson put this. And I think it really helps us. And this is one of those places where I want us to look at a specific part in the flow of the, all of these stories. So the master was furious. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 25 in the message uh, about verse 26. And if you wonder why I say about, it's because the message is not that specific to match its translation to typical verses. And that's a whole different discussion, but does no violence to the Bible. It's just a different approach to translation. So Matthew 25, about verse 26. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. Now, this is what he's saying to the, to the one talent person that hid the talent in the ground. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. And then the master pronounces judgment on him and tells him to throw him out into outer darkness and to give the one talent to the man who had, had taken five and made five more. The point is, there's a reckoning coming. And one of the things that, that I've really been concerned about in churches and lots of churches that I've been around is, is how we handle the things that God has given to us. It's true for us as individuals. I think about churches because, well, as a pastor, I just think about churches a lot. And here the master is absolutely furious at the one guy who did nothing with what he had been given. Master was not expecting him to be able to handle the 5,000 or even the 2,000. He was expecting him to be responsible and to get a return on the 1,000. And usually in most English translations, when we get to this point, the master accuses the servant of being lazy. Well, lazy, that's an interesting translation. And, and, and I'm not quibbling with it, but as I began to study this, I, I, I want to make sure we don't miss this, that this whole idea of lazy is not something that I've necessarily seen in the churches where I've been. Now, there are always, in every church I've ever been, people who do nothing. Okay? They show up and think they ought to get a merit badge for that. All right? I'm not here to be their judge by any means. That's not the role God has given me, but that's the reality of what happens. There are other people that pitch in and they do a lot. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here, the people who do a lot with what God has given them and the people who do nothing with what God has given them. And the important thing is they don't, they don't have to give an account to me. That's good. 
That's very good. But they will give an account to God someday. But in the midst of all of this, I have never thought, for the most part, that I've been around people that were lazy. Over life's time, there's probably one or two, and I don't want to think about that too much right now, because I don't think that's the general characteristic of the church people I've been around. I hope it's not been your experience either. But when I looked at this a little bit more deeply, there is another aspect of of this idea of being lazy. And all English translations are a challenge to go from one language to another. But in a couple of the English translations I looked at, and it seems to it seems to bear itself out in the in understanding the story, they refer to those people not la- not so much as lazy, but as timid. And that's what Eugene Peterson's doing here. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. Now I know some of us like change and some of us don't. Uh, that's normal. He's not talking about change. He's talking about living cautiously. I know people who don't like change, but they haven't lived cautiously. They've still done things in their life. They still don't don't go home and stay home and never go out and all that kind of stuff. They they make something of their life. They just like a regular routine more than they like constant change. So I think it's much more helpful to think of these people that Jesus is, is calling out here as timid than lazy. And the point is, don't be timid. Do something with what God has given you. And we can talk about what God has given you. A lot of ways to think about that. Sometimes I use the expression spiritual capital. So God has given you gifts and graces for ministry of one kind or another. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Then you ought to be a greeter at your church, welcoming people in. Maybe you have the gift of giving then you ought to give your money to God so it can be put to good use in the kingdom. Maybe you have the gift of leadership and you can organize people and get things done. Then you need to be the person that gets things done at your church. Those are the kinds of things we need to think about. What gifts has God given us? Many people have the gift of helping. They don't want to be in charge, but they'll pitch in and do a lot of the work. And that's absolutely remarkable. They are doing with their gifts and graces that God has given them exactly what God expects them to do. So that's kind of the idea of the of the story of the talents. And then the last story in the sequence, and we're trying to, to think about all these, the faithful and unfaithful servants, God clearly corrected that situation and rewarded the faithful and punished the unfaithful. Clearly the five bridesmaids, bridesmaids that were prepared were welcomed into the feast. The five that weren't prepared were shut out. And now the three guys that handled what God had given them, what the master had given them, the two that handled it well were rewarded, and the one that wasn't, well, that was the end of that. The message says, throw him into utter darkness. That's pretty bad. And again, the specifics of the, of the um, judgment here in all of these cases aren't the focus. They sometimes are very stark in their language. And the importance is to get our attention, not to focus on the specifics of that. To say, well, we don't want to be that guy, so we're going to be faithful. We're going to be prepared. We're going to use what God has given us in an appropriate way. And that brings us to the maybe the story that's more familiar in these this series of four that we're looking at today. is the story of the sheep and the goats. And so I think I'll just read this from the message. It's a really quite well said. And again, some of this may startle you and you say, well, is that what the Bible really says? Yeah, it is. But he says it differently to get our attention. 
And that's, a, that's important. God wants to get our attention. So at the end of Matthew chapter 25, starting about verse 31, when he finally arrives, referring to Jesus, the Son of Man, he's referred to as the Son of Man later, when he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in the kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. Now, we're going to pick up a little bit in a minute, but let's just stop there to make sure we have a couple things in mind. Notice that the first thing the king does is celebrate the people that were faithful, that did the right thing, that he wants to welcome into his kingdom. Now, we don't know at this point what happened and why they were welcomed, but they were. And that's what I want to emphasize. Don't be afraid of judgment if you're faithful, prepared, and doing what God has given you to do. That's the point. But he uses the idea of shepherd and sheep and goats here. Now, obviously, the shepherd is referring to the Son of Man, and he mentioned that specifically, the Son of Man, when Jesus comes back as the shepherd, and he sorts out the sheep and the goats. Well, it's not because that there's anything inherently good about sheep or bad about goats, that they're separated in here. That's just an illustration so people will understand. One of the things that we don't think about, but that would have helped them, was they lived in a time when they had herds of, of livestock, sheep and goats, and the herds were kept together. Sheep and goats were in a single herd. We don't tend to think about that, but I learned that when I visited Israel some years ago. And you could still see the, the flocks, and when you'd occasionally see a flock over there, you would see sheep and goats mixed in. The explanation was that for people to survive and thrive, their lives were supported by a flock that had a certain percentage of sheep and a certain percentage of goats. And I don't remember the percentage exactly, and there may be people who differ and disagree on this, but it seemed to be it was about 60 sheep and 40 goats, or maybe 70 sheep and 30 goats, something in that range. Not because, again, one was better than the other. This was just the way it worked to support life, and so that's what they had learned, so that's what they did. And it wasn't because goats are bad. Sometimes in our culture, goats are good. Now, if you follow sports, you will sometimes hear that someone was the goat in a game that was lost. They should have made the play and didn't. So we think of them as the goat. I've seen sports writers talk about the goat of the week, and they'll identify one, two, or three people who failed to live up to what they should have done in the game, and so they're the goat. At the same time, we often refer to someone as the goat when they think they're the greatest of all time. When we think they have played better than anybody else, they're the goat, the greatest of all time. So we use this in different ways. Don't get hung up on one being good and one bad. But remember, the ones that Jesus sorted out on his right, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, they were blessed, welcomed into the kingdom. And Jesus goes on then to explain what was going on. And he welcomes them in, and this is the reason he welcomes them in. Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. 
then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And did, when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, Get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. And why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom, but the sheep to their eternal reward. Sheep and goats. I think we get the idea. So, first story, be faithful. Bad to be unfaithful. Second story of the bridesmaids, be prepared. Five were ready, five weren't. Third story, when God has given you gifts and graces, abilities, use them. Don't be timid. Use them. And the sheep and the goats, It's sometimes it's simple things that we do to help people that need our help. And it's all about being faithful. Now, some people struggle with these ideas for a lot of reasons, and we've talked a little bit about that here, but I want to bring up one final thing. In all four of these parables, there is an emphasis, and you could argue this emphasis is in other parables of Jesus as well, but we're focusing on, on these four. There's an emphasis on obligation. The obligation to be faithful. The obligation to be prepared. The obligation to use what God has given you to benefit Him. The obligation to care for the people around you and to notice the ones that need your cup of cold water or your meal. The idea is to be faithful to Jesus in all of these stories. Obligation. I hope you are part of a church that understands how it can be helpful to people. Real quick, I want to tell you a little story about someone I read about recently. And many years ago, there was a case in Florida that got a lot of attention in Florida, made it out of got attention where you are, where Casey Anthony, a young woman, 21 years old, was on trial for murder. She was accused of murdering her two-year-old daughter. Her daughter went missing after some time was found, had been killed, put in a trash bag. Tragic situation. Many people thought that she had committed the murder, but it was not proven in a trial she was found not guilty. That outraged a lot of people. People look for vengeance sometimes. And I looked at the evidence, and from what I could see, I didn't want my daughter to be convicted on that. But the story wasn't about that story. And yes, a lot of people had strong feelings about that. But the story was about Kate, Casey Anthony today. The writer says she lives someplace in South Florida. I don't know where that is. We live in Southwest Florida, where I am. So I'm assuming it's on the other coast, the east coast of Florida. But she, according to the writer, the one who wrote the story, lives a solitary life thinking about what could have been and all that she's missed out on. She lives a life thinking everybody hates her. And in truth, it seemed that way at the time. 
And as I read the story, I thought, what does Casey Anthony need? Because there are dozens of Casey Anthonys. What Casey Anthony needs is a church that will treat her kindly, that will live out what Jesus called us to live out in these parables, and will lead with love. When she would go in that church, she needs to find people that don't talk to her about what she has been, but talk to her about what God wants to do in and for her. And I hope you are a part of such a church. And if you aren't, I hope you will find one. Because isn't that what God has called us to be? Isn't that our obligation? Is to reach out to the people, the broken, the wounded, the ones who have messed up in life, or everybody thinks they've messed up, and to welcome them and say, there's a God who loves you. He loves you very much. And he wants to give you grace to put your life back together and your life can be made new. It's true for all of those people and it's true for you. And I hope you will find that today. And you will trust the one who wants to make your life brand new. I'm Pastor Rick.